This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Doug Hoyce is on the phone right now. Uh, Doug is, like Blair, a licensed insolvency trustee, co-founder of Hoyce Michelos, a firm of uh, licensed insolvency trustees in Ontario, uh, inspired to bring his financial experience to work by helping individual people and not corporations. Uh, Doug is a big advocate for consumers needing debt relief uh, so that they get fair and respectful debt management solutions. He's a regular commentator on all kinds of national media. We're so happy to have you on the show, Doug. Great to be here. Thanks very much. Now, this segment, we're going to talk about a book that's just come out of yours. It's called Straight Talk on Your Money, The Biggest Financial Myths and Mistakes and How to Avoid Them. I'm pretty sure that we could fill up an entire hour, Doug, with the information from your book. But let's just focus on a couple of things. Um, Where did you get the title? What is Straight Talk on Your Money? Well, I find that a lot of talk about money is a sales pitch. You know, sometimes it's obvious you go into the car place and the car salesperson is obviously there to sell you a car. You understand you're talking to a salesperson, but often it's not quite so obvious. Like when you walk into the bank and you're dealing with the bank teller, you don't maybe fully understand that they're also there to sell you something a lot of the time. So I think we need fewer sales pitches and more straight talk when it comes to our money. So that's what this book is about. As you mentioned, I go through 22 myths, many of which are sales pitches, and I give you the straight talk on your money so that you you can be aware of them and then uh, avoid them or modify them as necessary. Now, it's really a, a really good point, when, and the bank was a great example, because you don't think that they're trying to sell you a product that's going to uh, benefit them in the long run. It might benefit you as well, but in the long run, they're going to earn the money, they're going to do a little bit better as a result of having more of your money, whether it be your mortgage or your loans or whatever it is. I think that's a really valid point. Yeah, and it's insidious because you don't realize you're being sold to. You've been going to the bank your whole life. Exactly. And you actually know who the person is there. You're, you're very friendly with them. And so you put your card in the machine because you've got to you know, cash a check or get some U.S. money or whatever it is you're doing at the bank. And, and they instantly say to you, oh, this is, this is great. You, the computer says you qualify for a $10,000 line of credit. Do you, mm-hmm. do you want me to sign you up? And you're sitting there going, oh, oh, okay, well, I guess if the bank thinks it's a good idea, I guess I should do it. Obviously, they've done an analysis of my situation and, and know what's happening. Uh, yeah, they've done an analysis, all right, and they offered you that line of credit as opposed to a credit card or a loan or something else because that's probably the thing that, that has the least risk for them, but they can make the most money on, and that's why you're offering it. they're offering it to you. So you just got a sales pitch, and you didn't even realize it. And if you were aware that a sales pitch was coming, maybe your guard's up and you can ask questions and be a little more guarded about it. But when you don't realize it's coming, that's when you get yourself into into trouble. No, and and I think the other piece of that too is it's not necessarily age-specific that they're directing it to. You could be a senior, you could be a really young person just starting out or maybe student loans and you've got your first bank account for the first time or, or you're living on your own for the first time. And 
you know, not everybody is, is doing everything in your best interest, right? Absolutely. And you're right. If you're a student, then they're targeting you with maybe a credit card here. You get a $1,500 balance. It's got a pretty high interest rate because that's really all the bank can make money off with you. Uh, maybe it's a student line of credit or something. If you're a senior, it's, oh, well, look at this. You're, you're a senior. You've got a pension coming in. Uh, would you like to talk about, uh, you know, maybe a loan so you can lend some money to your, to your adult children? Maybe we want to talk about a reverse mortgage, maybe something else that's more applicable to a senior. So they're very, good at targeting the offer to whomever is standing in front of them. And as you said earlier, it may or may not be in your, your best interest. And, and I'm not here to say that banks are bad. I mean, they, they're in business. They, this is what their job is. So I'm certainly not saying you should never go into a bank, and I, I don't want to paint them as the, the bad guys here. All I'm saying is you should be alert. You should have your spidey sense tingling, as it were, so that you understand what's coming, and therefore you can respond appropriately. Yeah, I think that that's great advice, Doug. Because I think you have, you know you really need to understand. You know, in some cases the bank's interests are going to align with yours, but sometimes they're going to be complete opposite, and you need to have that you know in your mind. That is the advice I'm going to get. You know, for my interest or, or for theirs. Um, yeah, absolutely right. Yeah, I, I wonder, Doug, if we can dig into the book a, a little bit. Can we focus on you know a couple of the the top money myths and traps? You know, I I read the book in detail. A lot of them I can see. You know, my clients and even myself at, at times falling into a few of them. I wonder if we can pick a couple that you think have resonated most uh, with individuals as you as you've published the book very recently. Well, I uh, got an email today, as a matter of fact, from somebody who said, hey, I read the book, and I, I kind of have to object to what you said about the credit score in the book. I was hoping we'd talk because, about that, yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah. So, so um, he, he uh, happens to be in the, in the lending business, and he said, he's, he's a mortgage broker, and he said, you know, a credit score is really important if you want to be getting a mortgage. So I, I think you, you know, what you said wasn't really on base there in the book where, where you talked about credit score. And I said, well, let's be very specific about what I said in the book. I said that you should not organize your entire financial life solely for the purpose of getting as high a credit score as, as possible. I understand that a credit score is important. I get it. If you're going to qualify, trying to qualify for a mortgage or car loan, anything, the higher the credit score, the better. You're going to get better terms, lower interest rate, and so on. But you can also become overly obsessed with a credit score. So your credit score is based on a number of things, one of them being, well, how much debt do you already have and what's your utilization on it? So you could go out and get five credit cards that all have a $10,000 credit limit on them. And if you carried a balance of $2,000 on each one of them, you'd actually look pretty good to the credit scoring algorithm. Your utilization is 20% because you're borrowing 2000 against the 10000 on each card. That's a pretty good utilization. So that would probably make your credit score look pretty good, all else being equal. Well, let's ask the obvious question here. Does it make sense for you to have five different credit cards with a $10,000 credit limit on each and borrowing $2,000 on each of those five cards? That's $10,000 you're borrowing on your credit cards at probably pretty high interest rates. I don't think so. I think it's better to have money in the bank, cash in the bank, and so on, but that doesn't show up on your credit report. There's no section on your credit report that says you're a good saver and you have money in your TFSA or your RSP or anything like that. All it shows is how you're handling your debt. So I don't believe we should be focusing on trying to get the best credit score. I think we should be focusing on doing what's best for ourselves, which in a lot of cases is having less debt and more savings. 
Yeah, that, that's a great point, Doug. And I can just echo that in the clients that I, I sit down with, obviously, folks that, that you see as well in a similar situation. And maybe it's because there's just not that many easy indicators that are out there. But a lot of people see a credit score as the be all and the end all the indicator of whether I'm, you know, a good customer or not. Um, and to, to your point, you know, they can be completely divorced from your actual financial health. Yeah, uh, well, that's absolutely right. I mean, if if you had $10 million in the bank, you'd never borrowed a, a cent in your life, mm-hmm. you owned your house outright, you wouldn't even have a credit score. Yeah. Yeah, you'd and be yeah, worse than, than the person with the five credit exactly, cards. Exactly, exactly, and that just that just makes absolutely no sense. So again, one of the themes in the in the book, Straight Talk on Your Money, is you've got to be the boss. You've got to do what's right for you. So if you know you're going to be trying to qualify for a mortgage or something in the future, okay, then I guess you've got to take some steps to make sure your credit score is as good as it can be. But let's not go crazy. Let's not go overboard here. Let's not get so much debt that it ends up hurting us in the long run. So, Doug, so, so continuing on with that thought, if I'm supposed to be in control or, or the boss of this situation, and I'm not very good with money, I don't have that base of knowledge that you obviously have or others have, where do I start? How, what are the things that I first keep in mind before I walk in that door? Well, I think everybody has to do their own research and do their own thinking. So one of the themes also in the book, in fact, it's one of the first chapters, is you should not just blindly rely on experts. Don't just believe whatever the the banker or the financial advisor tells you. So I think the starting point for everyone is to do some research, do some, some thinking on your own. Um, there's tons of resources at the library. They're free. There's lots of websites out there and blogs and podcasts. Obviously, shows such as the the one we're on right now have lots of great information. So I think you do your research, learn what's out there. You've got to obviously separate the wheat from the chaff a bit because some stuff is going to conflict with other stuff. But do the thinking so that you then become aware of um, of what's out there. I mean, if, if you want to have better health, then you need to learn a bit about exercise and nutrition and things like that. Um, it's the same with money. You've got to put the time in, put the effort in to, to do some learning. Doug, what about a, another really big learning for, from the books? So the credit score, I think, is absolutely pivotal. Is there another one that's really resonated, you know, either good or bad with the folks that you've shared the book with? Yeah, the the other big section, um, and this is the one that gets comments a lot from people in both Toronto and Vancouver. Got to be housing. You got it. Real estate. (laughs) Real estate. And so uh, one of the things I say in the book is you should not think of real estate as an investment. You should not think of your house as an investment. And people in Toronto and Vancouver go, well, that's crazy. I mean, look at the house prices. They go up 20% every year, year after year after year. It's a fantastic investment. Yeah, okay, that's what's happened over the last five or six years. If you look back over 20 or 30 years, it's not exactly the same. But the reason I say that is if you think your house is an investment, you will be much more tempted to buy way too big a house and take on way too big a mortgage than what you can realistically afford. Even if your house is going up in value, if you can't afford to make the mortgage payments, if you become house rich but cash poor, can't even pay the property taxes, you're trapped in your house, you can never even go out for dinner, I don't think that's a great situation. So my advice is think of your house like any other consumer good. It's just like a toothbrush. 
It's something I buy. It's something I get value out of. I use it. But it's not an investment. I'm not buying a toothbrush because I think it's going to go up in value. I think we overestimate how much our houses have gone up in value, too, because if you've lived in the place for 10 years, you've probably put a new roof on it and fixed the furnace and done some plumbing and did, did some landscaping and a whole bunch of other stuff. So I think we overestimate how much we've actually made because we ignore all those costs. But if you think of it as a place to live, and as a result, I think you'll be much more realistic in what you're buying. You'll try to have a bigger down payment, and you'll get into a lot less trouble. But but yeah, the, the real estate professionals, the mortgage brokers, they, they don't agree with that. It's, hey, look, they're, they're going to go up in value, so the bigger, the better. Well, I just don't agree. Doug, with the book, is there someone that the book is really aimed at, or is it a broad book that you know most people will find something to, to you know take from it? It's an excellent question, and I've had great response from millennials because they right. said to me, "Yeah, no one's ever taught us this stuff before. It's <laughs> not like we learn it in school." But I've also had five or six people who are eighty years old and over say to me, you know, this is, this is really good. There's a, a couple of good things in there. There's a chapter on being immortal, which really speaks to the, the older uh, people out there. Um, and a lot of them say, yeah, this is, this is great stuff. I'm going to pass that book on to my adult children, and, uh, and it's good for them. So um, it's, it's not an age-specific book. I've tried to cover basic financial themes, which I think apply at all ages. The book is called Straight Talk on Your Money, The Biggest Financial Myths and Mistakes and How to Avoid Them. Author is Doug Hoyes. Doug, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. How and when to use the province's, British Columbia's, statute of limitations on debt. That's what this segment is all about. So, first of all, Blair, you've got to explain it to me because I don't have a clue. Well, I have a little bit of a clue. Mm -hmm. What is the statute of limitations on debt? Yeah, so this is is something when I sit down with folks and I explain to them about this concept, they just have no idea that, you know, why isn't this more well-known? Why don't I already know about this? So the idea of it, you know, a statute of limitations, I think most people have a general sense that if something happens, you know, if you want to take some action against it, you know, if someone caused you an injury, for example, you can't wait forever to decide that you're going to, you know, cause that person to to be charged or something like that. You have to take action within a specific time, okay? okay? Now, the same thing applies for debt. So what it means in a debt situation is if you owe somebody money, they can try to collect from you for, you know, a long time, but they can really only have a legal avenue against you for a very short period of time, shorter than people think, and that's two years. That's the statute of limitations in BC. And I think two years is the same uh, uh, period of time if you're wanting to charge somebody or or take uh, legal action as well. Two years from the date of whatever it is, if it's an accident or whatever. Yeah, you'd want want to get your own legal advice for that stuff, but definitely from a debt point of view, and the Limitations Act is very broad, so it does cover many things, but from a limitation for a debt, yeah, it's two years, um, and it's important to know when that clock starts ticking because there are things you can do, you know, maybe not even knowing it, that reset that clock and actually aren't in your best interest. Okay, let's talk about those. When does that debt start ticking, or when does the clock start ticking on that? Yeah, so there's a couple a couple triggers. So, you know, one is when was the debt incurred? Um, 
when was the last payment made against the debt. So, you know, if you borrowed the money once and never made any payments, okay, well, that's your day. You know, that that's the date that we're going to start ticking from. If you borrowed the money a long time ago and you just continued making payments on it for a period of time, it's when was your last payment made. That's okay. when your clock would start ticking. So if I've had this, pay, if I've been making this payment for 18 months and then I stop, yep. then it's at that point. It's not from when I first got it. Exactly. It's at that point. Okay, good yeah. to know. So what's really important there now, the third way too, is you could also uh, give a written acknowledgement. You could sign something, say, yes, I agree that I owe this debt, and then that would reset your statute of limitations clock as well. Okay. But that, that's pretty uncommon. Most of the time, what happens is people think they're doing the right thing, um, and they think they're working with a collection agent that's actually very nice and very reasonable, and you know, they're a bit good cop, bad cop sometimes, but often the collection agent will say, you know what, I know you can't pay very much, just make a good faith payment this month this month. You know what? Send us in $10, $20, $50 or something like that. And the individual thinks, wow, this person's really working with me. They understand I can't pay very much. They can't reduce the debt, but at least they're not going to make me pay a whole lot. Oftentimes what's happened is the collection agent has realized this person's at, you know, 23 months of no payments. If they go another month and they don't pay, the statute of limitations kicks in and they can never collect the full amount. So sometimes making those small payments, all you're doing is making sure that you're never going to be free of that two-year statute of limitations. Because let's say you went you went that 23 months, then you paid it, and yeah. then it starts again, starts right? starts all over again. Whereas if I just left it, I'd yeah. be more free and clear, exactly. or at least in a different place than when I started. Mm-hmm. So are there exceptions to that two-year rule? Um, you know, there are some claims that just, you know, aren't subject to statute of limitations at all. Um, you know, if there's a civil claim, if someone goes to court and enforces a judgment against you, that's not subject to the two-year rule. There's a much longer timeline for that. Okay. Um, you know, debts owing to the government, like CRA and student loans, you know, very clearly there's no statute of limitations for government debt. Um, you know, if you owe the government money, you either need to pay it, you need to deal with it through a bankruptcy or a proposal, um, or essentially that money's not going to go away. Okay, cool. So... Go ahead. Oh, and I was going to say, you know, other debts, you know, things that would be common sense wise, you know, arrears of child support and spousal support. Not that anyone would want to do this, but you right. can't wait it out for two years and then expect that your liability would be extinguished. It's not. So we sort of talked about when the two-year period, the two-year period starts and stops. Can you give us sort of an example of when waiting until the debts are statute barred and how that solves a person's financial problems? Yeah, so it, it all depends on the individual's circumstances. But, you know, I deal with a lot of senior citizens um, in, in my office. And, you know, sometimes as I sit down and we, and we look through all the debts, there'll be a number of debts where they, you know, they haven't paid on them for, you know, five years, six years or something, but they're still very worried about it. Okay. They're still very worried that, you know, a bailiff's going to show up tomorrow at my at my door and start seizing my assets, or they're worried they're going to get, you know, dragged in, into court. Um, and, you know, they're, they're going to be, um, you know, publicly shamed or, or things like that. So, um, you know, essentially, if the two-year limitation has already expired, they don't need to have those worries. Okay, cool. Uh, what about uh, when the statute could apply, but a person wants to take action anyways? How does that work? Yeah, so it's definitely, it's no fun owing somebody money. And very clearly, the statute of limitations, just because that's over, that doesn't mean that you don't owe the money anymore. Okay. What it means is that you can never be forced to pay. So if two years has elapsed and a collection agent is hounding you and threatening you that they're going to take legal action against you, you know, you can rest relatively easily knowing that they're not going to be able to take any legal action against you. 
but they're still going to harass you. They're still going to have negative notations on your credit. So sometimes there's a lot to be gained by actually saying, even though legally I could never be forced to pay these debts, I know in good faith I borrowed this money and in good faith I want to take some action to deal with that. Okay, so you could help me do that or help someone do that. Exactly. So, you know, quite often we'll explain to somebody, you know, these debts are probably statute barred. You know, to the best of our knowledge, it looks like they're never going to sue you. You're probably never going to have to go to court and they can't force you to pay. Um, But perhaps for your peace of mind, for you sleeping better at night, uh, you want to go through either a bankruptcy or a proposal proceeding just to know that you face things head on and at least the harassment is going to stop. See, it just makes so much sense to me that talking to somebody like you is going to put a whole bunch of things, not only down on paper, but maybe help me sleep better Mm -hmm. because... Because I'm a kind of person that I would want to pay back my debts. You know, like if I borrowed money, I'm going to pay it back eventually. Mm -hmm. But I want to do it in an easier or in an easy way, right? So that doesn't cause stress on me or my family. Mm -hmm. Um, And you can help me figure that out. Yeah. And, you know, part of it, too, is looking at the person's budget and figuring out reasonably what can they afford to pay back on their debts. Okay, because sometimes and especially, again, the senior citizen demographic, there's such an imbalance between what's being paid on debts, paid on interest every month and what's being paid to live. You know, right. what are the necessities of life that are, you know, suffering and the grocery bill is, is not getting getting paid or they're barely eating because all the money is, go, is going to interest. So when I sit down with somebody, I like to look at, well, what can you afford to pay back on debt? You know, which of these debts might be statute barred versus not? And are you going to be better off continuing to do what you're doing? Or are you going to be better off if we look at either a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal? And I guess the, the sense of relief that some folks feel is pretty significant. Yeah, huge, hugely so. Um, you know, we get, you know, bouquets of flower and car- <laughs> flowers and cards and, and different things with just, you know, the nicest words you, you can imagine that people feel, you know, it's, it's life-changing when they can wake up and, you know, either armed with the knowledge that, you know, this person that's calling and threatening to sue me, they don't have a leg to stand on, so I'm just not going to worry about it. Or these persons that are calling me, they're going to have to stop because now I'm dealing with Sands and Associates and they're going to get in the middle. They're going to stop all the calls and they're going to help me work out something that's reasonable to pay on these debts. If I can do it, you're going to mm-hmm. help me figure that out. Yeah. If any of this information resonates with you, it's such good information because we're not alone. And I think that's one of the key things to remember, too, that folks thinking, oh, my God, nobody else is experiencing this. That's mm-hmm. just not the case. No, that's absolutely a, a fact of life. Um, you know, it, it's interesting, too. I often sit down with families that come in at, at once and, you know, I'll do the consultation for the individual that we're talking about. And then, you know, mom or dad might be at, at the table too. And sure. they'll say, well, you know, why don't you talk to me a little bit about my situation? Um, and then as soon as people understand, you know, there there is the opportunity to get help, you know, they don't have to carry this burden by themselves. Um, you know, a lot of openness within, within the family can sometimes happen at, at those meetings. And we can say, you know, you know, we've been hiding things for a while. Let's get it out into the open. Let's deal with the family's debt issue. Because there's so much, there's so many things out there that will protect us or at least look after us a little bit better than maybe that we know about right now too, right? Yeah. Whether it be the statute of limitations or just even the idea of putting together a consumer proposal or, or even if a bankruptcy makes sense or just even coming up with some sort of plan to make these payments or to pay off this debt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, ex- exactly. Very cool. So again, if any th- if this information resonates with you, uh, B- uh, Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, he's the guy to co- talk to. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. On the line with us right now is Nels Anderson. He's a game designer. 
Uh, he recently founded his own studio. It's called Caledonia. Before that, he helped create the games Firewatch and Mark of the Ninja, which you may know. Uh, he moved to Vancouver in 2005 from Wyoming, which is kind of cool. Welcome, Nell. So glad you could join us. Of course. Thank you so much for having me on. So we're talking about uh, the title of this segment is Millennials Feeling the Pinch. And I think it's, re- it, it's a really important topic because uh, you represent a whole group of young people who I'll call young people uh, living in <laughs> sure. Vancouver. I know, but right, you're, like, you're younger than me, so that's how come you get that, <laughs> you get that title. Um, but who are doing incredibly well, two-income family, children, all of that, but living in one of the most expensive cities in the country, depending on where you are, um, it's so interesting. And that's why I want to start with giving us a bit of a snapshot to your current situation. Yeah. So um, my wife and I have been married since 2009, um, just a little bit over a year ago. We had our first child, uh, the boy the is uh, 18 months old. Um, we live uh, in, in downtown in the West End. That's where we lived for like the last 10 years since we started living together. Okay. Um, yeah, obviously, we, <laughs> there is no way we could own where we live. Right. Uh, so we, we just rent an apartment that's mm-hmm. ba- barely big enough for us and uh, had a baby and a dog. So, Nels, would you mind sharing, you know, just some of the literally dollars and cents is the, the name of the show here. So the apartment that you've got, what, what's the rent for something like that? Yeah, the, um, the two-bedroom apartment, so the rent is 2500 a month, which gasps sounds so expensive. It's actually less than the average yeah. two-bedroom, like, and in, in change. Um, and it's definitely the kind of, like, we've been here, we, we moved in here specifically uh, to, you know, have an extra room for a baby to be in. <laughs> right. um, and so we're, yeah, we're not constantly, but... At least there's some background radiation in our heads of, like, if we were, you know, told to leave the apartment because the owners sold it to somebody else and they're going to move in here, um, we don't know what we do. Because finding another two-bedroom place that we could afford <laughs> anywhere near where either of us work uh, would be quite challenging, See, to and, the least. And that's the key, right? Because so many people, I mean, that's the, the, the good news and bad news about Vancouver, that you can live right in the heart of the city and work right in the heart of the city. And that's, that's a lovely situation to be in, right? But if you're just there renting, uh, you're at the whim of a whole bunch of forces that you have no control over. Exactly. Um, and even, you know, like the like, while it's nice to go to, to live downtown, it's very accessible and all that kind of stuff. It's like, we wouldn't actually save that much money if we lived, you know, way out in Surrey or something, right? We'd just be trading off, like, we'd knock, may, you know, maybe four or $500 off our rent. Um, but that's immediately just getting put back into the cost of gas because we have to drive everywhere. And my wife's going to need a bus pass to get home, to, to get to and from work. So the amount of, like, actual savings we'd have, even if we tried to live cheaper, um, and still even be anywhere vaguely close to our work, is there isn't really that much of a gulf there. Got it. Now, can I, now I don't have in front of me what your wife does, Nels. Uh, she actually also works in the game industry. Okay. <laughs> um, she didn't originally do that when we met, but she does it now. Uh, her focus is on, um, like, customer-facing support and community management and stuff like that. She works at a place called uh, Eastside Games. 
Okay. And uh, sort of a a current situation, uh, there's large tech companies wanting to find new locations or expand locations of where they are already in North America. And Vancouver's way up on the list if they're not here already. And nine times out of 10, that's where they want to be. They want to be within the city of Vancouver. So if you want to work for those, and they need folks like you and your wife, right? They're in desperate need of them. Uh, You all want to be in the city, right? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, even somewhat related, that, that's absolutely true because you, know, you just want to be able to get to work. Um, but also part of the challenge, actually, with the local high-tech industry, whatever we want to call it, is recruitment is actually extremely difficult because, mm. in general, the wages in Vancouver are a lot lower than they are in other places in Canada and certainly lower than, like, anywhere in the U.S. Yeah. that has a big tech center. Um, and the cost of living is so much higher that, like, trying to, you know, recruit and hire people because, like, the, the skill sets you offer, you need to kind of do, do the stuff that we do are super specialized, right? So we're not pulling from a talent pool of, like, hundreds of thousands of people. It may be, like, there are a few hundred people who are currently available that know how to do this work. Right. Um, and essentially asking them, it's like, well, yeah, sure, you could take a different offer in Seattle and make, you know, twice as much money and have your cost of living, but you could also come here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's like, that's, <laughs> that's not an offer that many people are going to leap at. Um, so it's both challenging for people to, to just, you know, who are already living here to, to, to succeed and grow their own businesses. But it's also very challenging to, to recruit and bring in other people as well. Got it. So when did you first, so you've been in your place for 10 years now. Uh, when uh, did not you? The, not, not the same place. Not the we same moved, place. We moved, we moved in here two years ago. Okay. So, but within the downtown core? Yeah. Okay. So when did you start to know or feel the impact of the of the housing market that we're all so well aware of here in the city and, and lower mainland? Yeah. Well it was actually when we were when we were evicted from one apartment because that wow. classic <laughs> situation, the owner sold it and then the new owners were like, Oh yeah, we're gonna live here now. Uh you got your three months, get out. Yeah. Um of course, and then we would have had to leave like four days after Christmas. Yeah. Uh, so that was great. Um, and then when we were looking at new places, like for basically the exact same square footage, you know, the exact same location, the exact same amenities, it went for, it added like oh, $600 a month to our rent for like effectively the exact same apartment. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, it was not great. And, and then when we moved over here, because we had needed to get the extra bedroom for the baby, then it was like, you know, another is $800 a month wow. of what we've been paying before. Um, and that's the situation that, like, it's it's definitely kind of this, this tar pit, right? Like, you know, my wife and I, we finished undergrad. We both have degrees. I actually have a master's degree as well. Um, like, we came out of school with relatively little debt, which you could do, you know, in the early 2000s. Yeah, back in the day. Anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, you know, we worked very hard to zero all that out, so we have no debt at this point at all in any flavor. But also, it's almost impossible for us to save, right? Like, at our current rate of savings, you know, we'll have enough money not to buy a place, enough money for a down payment uh, sometime between when we're, like, 55 and 60. Wow, Nelson. And you're clearly, you know, meticulous. You've run all the numbers. You've figured out your commuting costs, with a lot of people, which a lot of people don't do. Um, so on a reasonable saving rate, which I'm sure you, you made some reasonable assumptions, you'll be retired by the time you can get into the housing market pretty well. I don't know if people in my generation will ever retire. I suspect we will <laughs> yeah. just work until we die. You'll be you'll um, be traditional retirement age. Let's say that. Yeah. There you go. So let's yeah. go with that. Yeah. So that's like the yeah. trap, right? Where you know, 
even even fifteen twenty years ago, like you could pay your rent on a place and still be like socking enough other money away that then you can put a down payment on a place so that at least you're not paying rent into, into nothing. You were paying it into your own mortgage instead. But now that's that's effectively impossible unless you just stay at home living with your parents for a decade or whatever. Right, which lo- which lots of people do, right? Sure. Lots of people do. That's, so, it's, 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 well, I mean, my parents don't live here, and Tila's parents are way out in the suburbs. And also it's like, oh, hey, we're going to be a family with a baby. But how about we also live in your basement? Exactly. <laughs> so, I want for myself or our child. No, I get it. I get it. So, how Nels? How do you? Um, I don't know if stressful is the right word to use, but it must be a thing that weighs on you um, all the time for you and your wife. Weighs on you that idea that you are kind of always on the edge. You never know quite what's around the corner, and yet you're well educated, well paid, or reasonably well paid for the jobs that you do. Um, how do you deal with that kind of emotionally in terms of you know not not becoming overwhelmingly depressed? Uh, you just make a, a fundamental decision to not think about it. <laughs> That's about it. Um, because, yeah, it's 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 both frustrating and, yeah, completely un- unstable where it's like things can happen to our housing situation, which is, you know, kind of <laughs> the letter, in some ways literally and also metaphorically the bedrock of our lives. And those those decisions are completely out of our hands, right? Like if our owner sells this place to some investor tomorrow – there's nothing. There's nothing at all we can do about it. Um, so you just kind of have to deal with it and just be like, "Well, we can't control that either way." So right. soldier on. There we go. I guess, yeah. I mean, there's, there's nothing you can do. It just sort of is not. <laughs> just sort of a bummer. Nels, what do you think um, people could do to address the issue here? What, what do you think? You know, from an individual who might be, you know, saying, "Well, this is a housing crisis and people aren't listening." What what could individuals be doing if they're listening? I mean, a lot of it is, you know, th- this is an issue that has been a long time in the making and was built by a lot of inaction by policymakers who have the ability to regulate this, right? Um, so it's, there, there's, there's not, there's not going to be any silver bullet to deal with this, but it's going to require a lot of concerted action on, you know, all three levels of government, you know, the municipality, the province, and, and the federal government, of course. Um, and the thing is, like, you know, I, I guess I'm more politically engaged than most of my peers, but every single time I talk to my MLA or someone on council or something about this stuff, they're always like, wow, someone who's under 60 who <laughs> is actually talking to me about issues in their in my constituency, like, it, you know, it's easy to be cynical about politics, right? Um, but the thing is, it's like often policy decisions get made by the people who clamor about them the most. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when everyone's over 60, is already sitting on a house they've paid for and is now worth, what, 10, 20, 30 times what they paid for it, like, most people aren't worried about their housing situation, not really. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like people just stepping up and talking to their elected representatives and saying, look, this is a real actual problem that is affecting my family, our community, and our city, and something has to be done about this. And like, there are, there, like I said, there's not a single tool, but there are a lot of different ways to at least kind of sort of put the brakes on this, you know, more, more investment in cooperative housing, whether you're not owning where you live, but you do have stability. Right. We know that the reason why prices have gotten out of control, it's speculation, right? Like exactly how, what, what the percentage is on foreign versus domestic, that, I mean, that, that's almost inconsequential, right? The problem is speculation. Like people buy condos in Coal Harbor 
leave them empty for nine months, and then sell them for $300,000 more than they bought for them. Like, they're just treating homes like boolean or, or, or yeah. stock in a company that you can trade. But this, it's not. It's, it's not just a commodity. It's a place where people live. Like, homes are for housing families and individuals first. And we need policy to reflect that instead of just treating it like anything else that can be bought and sold. You're listening to Dollars and Cents along with Blair Manton. I'm Elaine Scollin from Sands and Associates. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Melanie Schroeder's on the line with us right now. So this is interesting about Melanie. Not only is she a registered professional counselor, but also a chartered professional accountant. And she uses both of those uh, skills to help people, uh, plain and simple, help them. She's a partner at KH Burnaby Chartered Professional Accountants. She's got a very good can-do attitude, which you're going to hear as we talk about uh, couples' financial issues. And we've all probably been in this position, good and bad, uh, where things have come up with our with our uh, partner and they've been difficult conversations or we or we could have used some help do it. Melanie, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. So what are some of the key financial issues that couples who come to you face? Probably, I mean, you know, they're fighting about money, but I think it's really just about, you know, one likes to save and one likes to spend. Hmm. So the the diff- yin and the yang. The yeah. Philosophies. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it's really just like that. You know, you get one that like gets that look on their face and they're like, oh, they just keep spending money. And what kind of advice do you give them? How do you give them a hand with that? Because that's a big one. It is really a big one. You know, I, it's about learning to speak each other's languages and, and a little bit of compromise. Hmm. Compromise. Com- <laughs> that we lovely. Could, yeah, that, that word. And that, what, what do you mean by, by speak each other's language, Melanie? Because I, I see it in my uh, practice as well. I often have uh, you know couples come in, and you can tell one couple is or one side of the couple is kind of blaming the other person, and they're just they're talking at each other, not to each other. Um, so I'm I'm wondering how do you get that kind of this shared language? Are there just you know certain things, certain ground rules that you set to help couples talk about money in the right way? Definitely. I mean, we go through and we start learning about how to communicate, and there's different counseling tools that we talk about and you know, feedback formulas, and I really like to use nonviolent communication. I don't know if you've... That sounds good, but yeah, I, no, I don't know much non- about it. <laughs> <laughs> anything nonviolent's it's good. Anything nonviolent, the, the Marshall Rosenberg with the giraffe ears, and it's a, a really great tool, but it, it is... And have you heard of the love languages? Mm. No, I don't. I no, let's tell yeah. Blair about the well, love let's languages. Explore, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, a love languages, there's... And I, you know, I wish I could actually... I hadn't even thought about bringing it up, so I can't even tell you the author of it. But it's, you know, this the idea that there's five different love languages and everybody speaks their own love language and they, they will show love in their own love language. And I actually believe that, you know, how you do anything is how you do everything. And, and money is the same way. So we'll feel and do money the same way that we do everything else. So how we spend money is going to be different how we all spend money is different, right? So yeah. we'll talk about and do money differently from our partners. So it's about listening as a, as a counselor when I'm in counseling sessions. It's about listening to how one person talks about money and the, listening to how the other person talks about money 
and then using the language that the other spouse uses and saying it back to the to the first spouse. So I'm, in a sense, an interpreter in that situation. So just trying to kind of bridge the, the communication gap between them there. That makes That's a, right. Makes a lot and of sense. You, you're kind of like teaching them each other's language, and then as they start to see that, then they learn each other's language. Right. And my experience, Melanie, is, is I find as I speak with my clients, you know, sometime our relationship with money is so deep-seated, you know, it goes back to our childhood and our parents and how were our <laughs> parents with money? Did we just not talk about it? Did we love money? Did we hate money? So I find people, they can bring a lot of, you know, for lack of a better word, baggage to meetings with me, and sometimes that's just an individual. So I can imagine, you know, if two couples have very different upbringings, very different groundings from a money perspective, it can be difficult even to act as an interpreter between them. Is that that correct? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you'll get somebody with boundary issues who will go out and they'll, you know, want to give all the money, you know, all of their joint money away. And the other person is like, what are you doing? Like, why are you giving all our money away? Why don't you ever want to keep any of our money? Mm-hmm. Or you'll get someone who has self-esteem issues, for example, and they don't feel that they deserve to have any money. And they're going to treat it differently than somebody who doesn't have that kind of feeling about it. That's right. So what are, have you got a couple of tips for opening up uh, a dialogue with your spouse to talk about money? So I'm listening to this interview and I'm thinking, oh yeah, I can see how that's playing out in my house. What do I, what do, I do then? Opening up a dialogue is really about being vulnerable and just saying, you know, here's how I feel about money. You know, when you spend it, here's how I'm feeling and I'm not feeling safe. Because it really comes down to, like when we're upset and angry, we're generally afraid of something. So if we can make it about that instead of blaming the other person, then, okay. we be- yeah. Yeah, then we become vulnerable. And that's really the root of nonviolent communication is making it about our own feelings as opposed to blaming the other person for doing something wrong. I think I'd need to have the help of a counselor in the same room <laughs> at the same time, Melanie. <laughs> <laughs> I think we all do sometimes, even me. <laughs> right? <laughs> is, there, is there some uh, um, good ideas or, or the best ideas around having a budget, having a budget system uh, between a couple that, let's say, have different issues or different ways of dealing with money? Yeah, you know, the best budget system I've ever seen is, is a simple one where you, you know, you have your joint funds that you pay for the household and you... You have things that you save for together, and then you each have some of your own spending money because you really need to have something of your own, right? Like, we all need to be able to go out and not answer to somebody about money that we're spending, something that we earn for ourselves. And then you also need to have something that you work on together because it's important for a partnership to have something that you're creating together. And and how about moving forward from there in terms of, so you figured a lot of things out at this point, and now I want to set some financial goals. I'm newly married, I'm reasonably young. How do I, what's the best way to do that? Setting Goal setting is, to me, you always start with the end result and then um, reverse engineer it and then create smart goals. So you want to create the specific measurable, um, they've got to be, realistic and they've got to be the time-based. So Mm -hmm. um, just reverse engineer them. So you know that in 10 years you want to have a house. Right. What do you need? How much do you have to, you know, how much do you have to save every month? And also hiring a coach is a great way to do it. (laughs) Or going to, you know, your, to your financial planner. A lot of the banks nowadays also have financial planners right in the branch. So you know, for a young couple, you don't always have a lot of extra money. You can access a lot of free resources there. 
Yeah, I think that approach, Melanie, I, I hope listeners really picked up on that is, yeah, begin with the end in mind, right? Mm-hmm. So if, if you wanted to get into, into real estate, for example, there's a big down payment that you're going to have to save. And if you, to use your words, you reverse engineer back, what does that mean per paycheck, even per day? Um, you know, suddenly it can become more real than just this goal that I'll never reach because it's so big and so daunting. So I think that's a very mm-hmm. smart way to come at it. It's a way I encourage my clients to think too, is, you know, the end goal of this is not the bankruptcy. The end goal is you being debt-free, having your credit rebuilt, you being financially secure and being able to, you know, potentially help others in your life. Let's work backwards from there. The first step, we got to cleanse all the debt away, but going forward, there's a bunch of things that you're going to do to be successful. So I think that's a great approach. Yeah, that's how I do everything. Right. When's the best idea if you're, so I've gone through a couple of your, uh, 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 your good advice, your tips, and they're not quite working. What's, are there some very specific clues uh, that will show up when it's time to get professional help? Well, I think that that's the clue right there, actually. Like, you know, these things work if you do them. And if it's not working, then there's some kind of a block. And it's usually a belief that you're holding. Either you don't believe you can do it, which is, you know, an indicator of an underlying belief that you need to clear up. Excellent. And resources. Yeah. What about resources out there? Have you come across any that are good good places for folks to start with? In around couples' financial issues? Yeah, and how to get started and hopefully resolve some of them. There's, there's a book called The Millionaire Mindset that has a, the very simple uh, financial system that I was talking about. It's fantastic, and it actually talks about a lot of the beliefs around money that people can have and couples can can have together. And it talks about the different types of people and like spenders or savers or money monks, I think is one of them. Mm. And um, it can really help people open up conversations and then just being able to communicate. So the um, nonviolent communication. Working on that. Mm-hmm. Excellent. We've been talking with Melanie Schroeder, who's both a registered professional counselor and a chartered professional accountant. She's a partner at KH Burnaby Chartered Professional Accountants. If you'd like to get a hold of her or learn more about her or uh, get some good ideas, this is the website, kempsharvey.com slash Burnaby. You've been listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates. Uh, you can book your web, uh, go to the website, sands-trustee.com if you'd like more information on the kinds of things that Sands and Associates can offer you in terms of money issues and debt. You can book a free consultation with one of the experts and start living a debt-free life. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.